0: Welcome to episode 172 of Greater Than Code. My name is Jacob Stobel and I'm here with my co-panelist Jessica Kerr.
1: Good morning, and I am here with my good friend Artemis Starr.
2: Thank you, and I'm really excited today to be able to introduce to you Miko Matsumura. So I met Miko at Gradle Summit years ago, the first Gradle Summits that, you know, ever existed. And I've got this history in the Gradle community with all these amazing people on, on this team and this hub. And there I met Miko who got on stage as a CMO and we're like, CMO, what is that? (laughs) And then that prompted me to go talk to Miko and I I realized this magic of how he'd taken his past experience in neurology and software and you know as a spiritual being in the world and mapped all of that over to looking at these marketing systems the these human structured systems as like machines that you can design and think about. And we had these amazing conversations and I've been so excited about getting Miko on the show. And so I'm so super glad he could join us today. So Miko is a general partner with Gumi Cryptos, a $30 million venture capital fund focused on early stage blockchain startups and a venture partner with Bitbull Capital, a cryptocurrency fund of funds. He has been a keynote speaker at dozens of blockchain conferences around the world. He's also co-founder of the crypto exchange, Evercoin. I'm so excited to have you on the show, Miko. Thank you for joining us.
3: Yeah, sure. It's a pleasure.
2: So the first question we always ask is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it?
3: Yeah, I guess I would say my superpower is kind of not knowing things. So, you know, I guess in a way that what's happened over time, uh, culturally, I was raised as a Buddhist and, you know, in Buddhism, you're very much sort of reliant on observation and on your own senses. So, you know, really, if you 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 have to kind of assume that you don't really know anything, which I think helps with lots of situations, right, because lots of situations kind of require you to Find out things, right? So if you if you start from the premise that you don't know things, then it kind of helps. I, I suppose you could spin it as maybe curiosity, you know. And that's kind of what led me down the path to uh, neuroscience and you know my academic research and study, because it, you know really uh, kind of piqued my curiosity. I was really interested to kind of explore what was, you know, what's in that kind of weird three-pound device, you know, I guess I would say the most complicated little device uh, that we've ever seen.
2: Wow. Not knowing things, not knowing anything that forces you into this mode of reliance on observation on your own senses. It reminds me of the phrase, lose your mind and come to your senses.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. Coming to your senses is really big. And, you know, it really kind of keeps things fresh, right? So I think the thing that happens a lot of times is that the mind is this kind of evolutionary place. And so we end up with uh, this kind of very convincing illusion of uh, this experience that we're having, you know, I, I guess you could characterize it as being a bit like the matrix. And you know, because of that, people can be very trapped in their thoughts, and they can be very trapped in kind of thinking. And the thing that's very interesting is, you know, how can you sort of break out of thinking and how can you kind of get into, really, I would characterize it maybe as detecting. So detecting is kind of more like showing up for what's real and what's there and then trying to kind of figure out what all of it means. So that's really, I think, it's pretty big in venture capital uh, as as a job is... It's sort of a detective job. It's kind of 50% detective and maybe 50% maybe intelligence agency type of work. So I I think that's kind of the mood of of that kind of business.
1: Really? detective like figuring out what's going on in the industry?
3: Uh, It's not even in the industry, actually, because at some level, the industry is kind of not something that you can exert much control over you know, what you really want to figure out is you want to figure out what's kind of going on in a specific entrepreneur. And, you know, you kind of want to understand sort of what's motivating them and try to understand more about things like what's real, like what's, you know, because the thing that's quite fascinating about this process is that people are often, you know, not what they seem, both in favorable and disfavorable ways. So, you know, I think the ability to sort of tune in to uh, very small signals, I think are are important. And, you know, one of the problems with this approach is that it's effectively a pattern matching approach. And I guess, you know, that's problematic because uh, it's difficult to... uh, Basically, successful entrepreneurs are pattern breaking and successful venture capital people are pattern matching. So, you know, at some level you know, you're probably almost always wrong.
1: So you're looking to pattern match on people who break the pattern?
3: Yeah, that's very meta, but it's a, that's a very hard thing to pattern match against. But, you know, it's that's sort of where the Zen aspect has to kind of come into it, you know. So it's a very interesting, intriguing, and complex process. But, you know, I think ultimately it comes down to sort of this posture that you don't really know. And it's very important to understand the limits of what you can know and what you do know, and not kind of falling for the illusion that you know something that you don't know. Like an example is things like vertical industries, right? So for example, you know, let's say you're trying to invest in a company that is doing work in sort of micro lending and finance in Africa, right? So... The thing that's very tempting is to sort of get these explanations about what they're doing, and then after getting a certain amount of explanation, kind of making the assumption that you actually understand what they're doing at any significantly deep level, you know. So I think that's an important thing to also understand, which is the idea that, you know, it's this very seductive notion that, you know, after... It's funny, like if you have a meal with someone, you kind of get this very strong impression that you know them, right? So it's like, oh, do you know this person, you know? And then after a little while, you're like, yes, I know that person. But you don't actually know the person, right? And so for example, it's like, oh, do you know this industry? Uh, it, you have a, There's a very similar effect that happens in the human brain where, you know, if you study something for a fairly short amount of time, you kind of get this impression that you actually know that. And I think both of those things are, are somewhat dangerous, right? The notion that you know, people, to the extent that you can predict their behavior over a lot of really strange, uh, upcoming circumstances. The other thing that's kind of a big illusion is that you kind of know, you know, you can't really know, a lot about a lot of different industries, right? You can kind of know a little about the industries that you've had direct experience in, you know, which is why I tend to favor what I call T-shaped venture capitalists who sort of have a deep domain expertise. And then they have quite a lot of horizontal capability that allows them to kind of make a lot of inferences. But obviously the danger is, is that they succumb to the illusion of knowing a lot of things. And I think, you know, most humans don't know a lot of things. And most humans actually really know very few things.
0: Yeah, that's making me think of being married. (laughs) It's making me think. So I was reading recently about relationships and marriages and how, you know, you get married and you think you know this person that you're committing your life to. But in reality, they continue to change. And even if they weren't, you're changing. And so your understanding of that person has to change because you're changing. And it was saying something about how like one of the sources of dissatisfaction in marriage often stems from the fact that like their partner seems to be so different after X number of years and they don't know what to do about it. And it was just making me think about that. It was like, you think, you know, somebody and you're 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 investing so much you know emotional energy in saying, "I absolutely know who this person is, and what that co- what that could cause you to do is like not do the daily work of continuing to know about the person or in your case, a subject matter or an industry
3: yeah 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 uh, that that's absolutely a beautiful observation you know I do think that you know when people do get married they're effectively sort of marrying a person about whom they have sort of a hunch, right? So it's sort of like, oh, I have a hunch about this person, right? But really, like, as far as kind of knowing the person, you know, the thing that I think you're touching on that kind of segues into more of the Zen Buddhist mindset is this concept of uh, impermanence, right? So I think you're touching on this notion that, you know, even if you know completely the person at this moment in time, you know, the next moment actually brings transition and change, and you may not know that person, you know. So one of the things that's really interesting is, is, you know, I think one of the sort of pinnacles of Greek philosophy is sort of the Socratic edict of knowing thyself, you know, but obviously, you know, if new circumstances arise, then we find that sometimes we even surprise ourselves, you know, and surprises can come in positive and negative forms, And so if you can't really even know yourself, then it becomes pretty challenging to know other people, especially over kind of long periods of time. Yeah, that's really fascinating.
1: Nico, you mentioned that we get married to someone because we have a hunch about them, which is in people, we make all the really hard decisions with our feelings.
3: Yeah, that's interesting. And I think it's really important to consider, right, which is that when you think about people talk about things like the gut. And, you know, when they talk about their gut, like, you know, there's a lot of people that talk about things like, oh, it's sort of the enteric nervous system, you know, which is the ganglia that, you know, exist actually physically embodied inside of the gut. But like, I think it's even more complicated than that, right? Because people are like, oh, the enteric nervous system is doing processing. And it's like, "Uh, kind of, yes and no, right? Because the thing that happens is is that it isn't actually your gut that's doing the processing. Your gut is kind of involved in responses that can be sensed, right? So, for example, if you think about things like the interaction between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, you know, it means that things like you know if you're detecting threat then sometimes your gut goes into a sympathetic nervous autonomic nervous system reaction and you know that's detectable right so the point is is that you're not actually accessing solely the enteric nervous system that somehow has like vast processing power like that that's just a false kind of model of what i think is probably happening what's happening is is that your gut is actually producing sort of uh, sensory stimulus that you can detect, but that that sensory stimulus is actually kind of an aggregate computation that involves the central nervous system. Like uh, an example of this is, you know, let's say you're in a forest and you see some shapes, right? So maybe the shapes are pattern matching against like a tiger, right? So maybe what happens is that this notion of the tiger is pattern matched at a fairly deep level in your nervous system, and your body starts shifting into the sympathetic nervous system, you know, and moving towards fight or flight, right? So at that point, what happens is you may get this nervous tingling that you can actually now detect that's quote unquote coming from your gut, right? So it literally is a sensory experience of what's happening but the computation probably isn't happening, you know, in your gut. So, you know, so when people say they make gut decisions, I don't think the enteric nervous system itself is computing the answer to the problem. You know, I I think it's much broader than that, right? So I think it's a, it's really relates to, I think, again, this kind of feeling of being more related to the sensory input, right? So the sensory input if you look at the gut and the experience of the gut, the entire experience of the gut is actually just sensory input, right? So if you really think about all of these experiences that we have, you know, experiences of our entire embodiment are really just the data inputs that we use, you know? And so I think when people say like, oh, people are making gut decisions, you know, people also talk about things like the heart, right? So, you know, the heart, if the enteric nervous system doesn't have very much processing capability for information, uh, I'd say the heart and the innervation of the heart probably has even less computational processing power. But the reality is that for, you know, centuries at the very least uh, since the beginning of documented literature, people have been talking about the role of the heart in terms of human emotion. And of course, emotion is inseparable from feeling, right? So, you know, the idea that people have feelings, you know, what are feelings? Feelings are data. The feelings are sensation. So that's, uh, I think, important to consider when, when we talk about these sort of pseudo metaphorical embodied data sources.
1: So the, the gut feeling is is an expression of where we experience the results of the computation that involves our whole nervous system?
3: yeah, that's spot on. That's exactly my way of looking at it. So you know, I think people have wow. like there's a lot of mythology around the enteric nervous system. What is know. the
1: enteric nervous
3: system? Ah, uh, the enteric nervous system are actually neurons that exist in your viscera, right? So you know, people think that and you know and and that's not particularly stunning that such neurons exist. And obviously, it's not particularly stunning that those neurons can exhibit kind of computational properties, you know, at least what appear to be computational properties, right? So to me, that's all of interest. But in some ways, it's less about kind of data coming in and data going out. It's really that combination. It's both sensory and it's also kind of related to, you know, the output of the sensory system. So Anyhow, that's sort of the way I look at this stuff, right? But, you know, to make a long story short, like, human decision-making is definitely an embodied process. And, you know, I do think that these kinds of gut aspects are pretty important. And I think the limitation of human knowledge kind of relates to the structure of the flow of venture capital, which is typically venture capital is performed in partnerships, and partnerships are a way of getting you know more eyeballs, more brains, more guts, more heart, more of everything involved, right? So you know you get much more parallel processing and you actually get much more sort of three-dimensional or multi multi-dimensional maps of uh, a space, right? But the, I think where the magic happens is is the notion that ultimately you're trying to predict the future. And of course, people's ability to do that uh, is pretty limited. It's it's sort of very limited. So I, you know, I, it's it's very interesting. I would say that there are many different ways to be successful at this role, but you know, and in fact, there are some people that have kind of almost supreme confidence in their own ability to predict the future, and that the market doesn't necessarily penalize people who take that perspective as well. I got a question for you, Miko. Sure.
2: Um, like listening to all this. And the thing that's on my mind is tech interviews. And I worked in the tech recruiting industry for a number of years and did I was CTO and did consulting and tech recruiting and got really involved with the local community. And so I learned a lot about the recruiting markets and shifts in hiring practices and how different economic trends and attitudes ended up affecting hiring. And at the same time, I'm like working with these people that are like phenomenally talented, and at the same time struggling to get jobs in various ways. And there's this dynamic of these first impressions, and these systemic sort of biasing effects such that certain sort of people get shut out And so this is, and being frustrated by this, I'd find all these like really passionate, talented folks. And then I, you know, everyone wants senior engineers and there's not enough of them. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so um, the people that are good are getting like five offers and stuff. And then we had these folks that were amazing talent and struggle to get jobs. And I'm like, how hard is it to interview as a senior engineer, really, right? And so I started mentoring people and coaching these junior folks into jobs. And what was fascinating, if I taught them how to stop and think and ask questions, (laughs) gave them a checklist of questions to start thinking about in their interview process as they went through approaching a problem, those first impressions, those alignment started shifting. So suddenly, you know, these, these people have like two years experience and they're hitting all the bells of the predictive things that a senior person would do. And I'm thinking about what sorts of things you've seen in terms of market trends with regards to tech recruiting and hiring, how you see these patterns when people are like interviewing first impressions, what, what kind of things do you see in your world?
3: Yeah, it's really uh, what you're describing is extremely interesting and valuable, right? Because in a way, it a lot of these kind of exhibited behaviors that match patterns are potentially coachable and teachable, right? So you can really almost like simulate 10 years of experience with like 10 hours of training. Right. So that that, you know, it turns out that that's a really strong kind of arbitrage. Right. So uh, if you look at it from the perspective of kind of the venture industry, in a way, like ultimately that industry is really just doing job interviews for startup CEOs. Like that's really the industry. And, And honestly, like it's a very inexact science in a very difficult process you know the thing that I think we're going to probably eventually have to learn is we're gonna kind of eventually have to learn how to do a better job kind of compensating people for behavior and and I think one of the things that's kind of arisen that's sort of a anathema to this this sort of kind of lifetime, learning slash training on the job training is is kind of the gig economy right so you know it feels like we're increasingly kind of sort of deep we're sort of chopping up work into projects and you know so I think I think we may be moving towards a much more kind of a freelance style economy because this notion of sort of lifetime employment is just not you know, how do you do that? Like, uh, it's, it seems very impractical.
2: Yeah, I, it seems like a fundamental sort of market shift happening in that way right now, of like self organizing freelancer teams.
3: Yeah, and I think that a lot of that is, it's very interesting, because it ultimately kind of has to do with expectation setting, right? So, you know, I think that it's interesting, because it then becomes a much more complicated kind of world, right? Because in a sense, like if you have a paradigm of sort of lifetime employment, you know, then then you have this sort of paradigm of mutual investment, you know, you have this kind of paradigm of learning and, you know, process. And I think this paradigm has kind of been more kind of prevalent in Japan. So, you know, the Japanese employment practices tend to skew in that direction. Although I'd say that, you know, modernity has kind of pressed in and made that a little bit less prevalent and less popular. But, you know, I would say that, you know, in the long run, it feels like the natural evolution is towards, you know, kind of almost like a freelance gig economy for everyone.
2: I'm wondering... If there's a way to balance those two things to create longevity and meaningful relationships over time, because those lifetime relationships are still very much important, but more of like artists mixing their work together and potentially doing it over a longer time period, too. Just dream how would you evolve that sort of world? Take that to its logical conclusion of balancing those two things.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that what happens is that you end up kind of with these sort of chaining of experiences. For example, if you look at this concept of serial entrepreneurship, it becomes the idea of, you know, how a set of experiences can inform sort of a next tour of duty, right? So, you know, I tend to be, I would call it sort of relato, transactional as Uh, someone in sort of the venture world. And it it means that I prioritize the development of relationships and the relationships can potentially transcend individual transactions. But I think that, uh, you know, transactions, including things like investment, but I I would say that, you know, if you really look at it sort of philosophically, you know, then you can start chaining together these experiences that may go across companies So, you know, you may have a person who worked at a company and then now you're recruiting them into a different one. So, you know, these eventually what happens is, is that the relational aspect of this becomes these kinds of social networks that transcend projects, companies and the rest. So in terms
2: of interviews and you think about just two people sitting across from each other at the table and first impressions Um, that flash back and forth between these two people. What are some of the patterns that you see?
3: I guess for me, the thing that's really difficult about that is that, like, I'm, in a way, I struggle with the whole framework, right? Because I feel like interviewing is sort of bad at doing its job, right? So if I were trying to hire interviewing, uh, I would... Fire it from its job because, you know, interviewing is supposed to basically predict on-the-job behavior, but it's sort of exceedingly artificial. So, you know, from my perspective, one of the things that, you know, I always kind of like to do is uh, have as much observation time as possible. And in a way, that's one of the reasons why sort of long-lasting multi-company kind of relationships become sort of exceedingly valuable is because you've had kind of a very enduring amount of time across multiple experiences to understand kind of a person's trajectory, behavior, values, mindset. Because I feel like the interview is sort of crazily artificial environment. And it's also kind of very subject to sort of being gamed right so it's easy to game an interview whereas it's harder to game kind of uh, life in some ways
0: yeah it's that idea that if there's some kind of assessment system that's used like some kind of rubric that's used to determine you know to assess some kind of value in this case if someone would be a good employee there's usually some kind of way to game that system
3: and yeah, it's kind and, of a paradox and, but yeah, and goodness goodness is such a like abstraction, right? For example, if you have kind of this meritocratic type of culture, right? Then you could kind of argue that goodness equals smartness, right? But the thing that's kind of potentially problematic about that is is that, you know, if a person doesn't have loyalty or if they don't have kind of a team spirit or, you know, so there's certain dimensions of this where a person could become very unmanageable, even though they're highly intelligent, right? So, you know, unmanageable, you know, they could potentially be constantly looking for higher paying jobs outside of your company instead of doing their work or, you know, so so to me, like, these types of things are kind of hard to detect using sort of an interview process. And in fact, it's it's sort of, in general, the kind of framework of interviewing becomes this kind of framework of, let's try to understand if this person is fit to do this particular role, right? But the thing that it doesn't elucidate very well is whether the person cares about doing that, you know. And that's kind of where more gut things kind of come into play. But again, kind of the gut is foolable, especially over short periods of time, right? So artifice is something that is easily you can easily fool people some people some of the time you know it's i guess the old adage is that you can't fool all the people all the time uh you know so that's sort of um you know the bob marley principle i guess
0: i think you touched on on this a little bit we had another guest several weeks ago who's a clinical psychologist we talked a lot about how emotionality is really just at the core of being human and like there's really no such thing as any action that a human can take that doesn't have some kind of emotional component to it because it's sort of the core language that we, that our brain operates on in some respect.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's very fair, right? Because if you actually kind of look at the brain and neuroanatomy itself, right, like you can actually understand the evolutionary build out of the brain kind of from a sort of a atavistic perspective, right? So, you know, people talk about the so-called triune brain, which is sort of a prevalent model that emerged out of, uh, you know, the era of uh, Sigmund Freud which is the notion that there's a reptilian brain, you know, so that if you if you model the human brain, there's actually the brain stem and the hind brain, you know, really resembles the brain of a lizard. But on top of that, there's sort of a limbic system and midbrain system that maybe resembles the brain of a monkey. And then maybe there's a forebrain and, you know, kind of neocortex that sort of, you know, looks more like a dolphin or it looks more like a maybe a social mammal including humans, right? So if, if you kind of look at it from a brain sort of architecture perspective, there really is no, like, you know, if you think about behavior, like behavior is all cascading out of, you know, either the primary, you know, nerves or, or you know, from the spinal cord. So, you know, if you really look at it from that perspective, you know, there is no behavior that you can output that doesn't pass through kind of the messy, Midbrain, you know, so so absolutely, uh, you know, and if you actually do it kind of from a pure neuroanatomical perspective, the neocortex, which people really attribute with logical thinking, is about the thickness of a average business card. And it's kind of plastered to the front part of the skull, which is probably about as far away from the brainstem stem. Uh, you know, which triggers behaviors, you know, as as you can get, uh, you know, physiologically. So there's certainly a lot of routing that goes through much more uh, messy, reticulated neural structures.
2: So what I heard you say was this sort of rational thinking, sort of behavior that in our neocortex is the thing that's the thickness of a business card. Did I get that right?
3: Yeah, it's sort of this very thin. Logical structure, columnar structure that's sort of right at the front of your skull. All right. And then
2: we've got, you know, all these messier neural structures underneath that. And there is no behavior that you can output that doesn't pass through this messy midbrain. So it's like our neocortex, our rational thinking is sort of like this facade of reason on top of our messy midbrain.
3: Yeah, right. that's. I think that's a very accurate kind of model of the neuroanatomy. And, you know, the other elements that I think are important to think about, too, is, you know, if you think about behavior as being kind of an emergent output of a lot of different kinds of action potentials and a lot of different types of, like, electrochemical activity in the brain, so just the sheer lack of biomass of neurons actually kind of points the way to you know, making us understand the brain to be, uh, first of all, a multi-organ system rather than just an organ, you know, and also a set of highly specialized information processing systems that all kind of interact, right? So because of the sort of interaction of these systems to perform behavior, you can really kind of start to question the, you know, how, how, logical human behavior is. And, and, you know, I think there's so many kind of shadows on the wall today in modern society that help us to understand uh, that to be the case, right? So, you know, if you look at all, you know, a lot of the biggest problems that we have in the world are really a function of sort of large masses of behavior that is really fundamentally illogical, right? So I think threatening Your own species with extinction is, you know, as Mr. Spock would say, it's, you know, highly illogical. But, you know, it's something that we seem to be doing a bang-up job of.
2: So in terms of shadows of the wall, you're referring to Allegory of the Cave? Ah, yeah,
3: yeah, definitely, right? So, you know, (laughs) the reflection of the underlying reality onto what's observable.
1: Yeah, and then there's what we choose to observe, which, as you pointed out at the beginning of the podcast, depends on what we don't think we know
3: yeah exactly so I, I think absolutely i guess i the reason why i would kind of characterize not knowing as a superpower is that it's hard to find out stuff if you think you already know it and that sort of uh, becomes sort of a large impediment right the impediment is kind of like oh i already know this stuff i know this person i know what I'm doing, or whatever it may be. And the thing that not knowing does that I think is beneficial from a human health perspective is that if you assume you know too many things, then your thinking becomes overly mechanistic. And that actually tends to reduce freedom.
1: Mechanistic, right. like predictable?
3: Uh, yeah, predictable, definitely. But more than... Predictable. It's sort of uh, reductionistic, right? So, what I mean by that is, is that you know, it's fairly easy to get depressed, or it's fairly easy to kind of get stuck, right? So, you, you you get more frequently you get more stuck if you kind of make too many assumptions about the degrees of freedom of your own kind of perceptions, right? So, so the idea would be that you just construct the world as a set of if then statements. And then you try to compute outcomes based on these if-then statements, right? But like the more kind of deterministic your reasoning is, the more you end up with these kind of problems that can't be solved. And then obviously that ends up kind of making you more stuck, right? So to me, the kind of tendency to kind of come to your senses is one that is sort of, uh, I would say, not only kind of beneficial but it's also can be you know sort of life-saving as an instinct right because you know when people get into despair a lot of times they're getting pretty desperate because of the assumptions they're making about how things are
1: you mentioned if then statements as in you know if people think the world is deterministic it's reductionist i want to tie that to something you said a minute ago that I wanted to ask more about. You described behavior as the emergent output of a lot of action potentials. Yeah. And then,
3: yeah. There, there are many things that we might do. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was when I when I used the phrase "action potential," I was kind of using not the uh, metaphorical potential for action, but I was literally talking about electrochemical spikes occurring in a neuron. So when you aggregate lots of kind of neuronal spiking, referred to as action potential, then that aggregates into behavior. I also like how it works as a metaphor to uh, action potential being, you know, the potential for action. It's it, the, reason, the reason why a neuron triggering is called an action potential is really just the beginning of neuroscience, right? Which is you know, what would happen is, is that the observable phenomenon is that the cell, the neuron, would do this thing called depolarize, right? So you'd have this electrical, electrochemical spike that would travel down this long part of the neuron called the axon, right? So it would basically create this electrochemical wave, and it would trigger down, right? And the reason why this is called an action potential is, is that when you see the spike, it actually produces the potential for the organism to perform an action right you know but the thing that's funny about the idea of potential is is that you can also see these things spike and there can be no action right so it's a it's a very funny thing you know that's happening which is that the triggering of neurons creates the potential for action but it may or may not actually create the action. So as I'm listening to you talk
2: about this system, I'm like imagining this visual picture in my mind where I imagine myself and I'm kind of like a a fountain that's bursting output energy and I've got a heart component and I've got a gut component and those are like two sensors that are feeding up into my messy neural Um, spinal cord, midbrain processes. And then we've got this output signal that's being generated from our fountain, uh, this emergent potential as you described it. And then all of that energy feeds into this little thin neocortex business card sized layer that puts rationality on top of that. And then we burst out with this expression in the world is kind of how I'm imagining this now. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds great. And so I'm thinking about the meaning of this idea of lose your mind and come to your senses, which in this context, then so if I'm losing my mind and coming to my senses, what would that mean to you?
3: Yeah, so let me characterize it this way, right, which is, you know, one of the things that kind of comes out of sort of the culture of of Zen Buddhism in particular is this concept that's called small mind and big mind. So the idea of big mind is really the idea of this sort of, I guess I would characterize it as almost a universal intelligence right? And in order for you to access this sort of universal intelligence, you kind of need to surrender your kind of individual intelligence, right? So I I realize it sounds a little far out. But, you know, what what I really mean is, in the context of something as simple as an investment partnership, right, the idea that, like, it's sort of the, the antidote to the mastermind concept, right, which is instead of the idea that, you have an individual who kind of has the correct understanding, you know, and whose purpose is to sort of intellectually dominate other people and get the other people to act inside of this other person's mental model, you know, it's quite reversed, right? The idea is more, you know, how can you maximally access the intelligence that's embodied in another person, you know, and how can you sort of gain all of the advantage of all of the intelligence that, you know, is outside of of your brain, right? So, so, you know, look at it in the most simplistic way possible, which is that if you take your brain and all of its capabilities, it's pretty improbable to assume that your brain and its capabilities exceed the capabilities of uh, every other brain in the world added together, right? So, you know, the point being, and obviously, like, You know, when I talk about just human brains, I'm not actually talking about kind of like, you know, getting career advantages by talking to your dog, you know, but what I am talking about is that the world is observable, right? It goes beyond tapping into kind of like the intelligences of your colleagues on your work project. It really has to do with tapping into kind of, you know, the complete experience of being a person, you know, and taking in all of the inputs, right? Like, I, like I, I guess I would characterize it this way, right? Which is, you know, one of the famous ways of understanding this phenomenon is, uh, you know, what happened with August Kekulé, who was the discoverer of the structure of benzene, you know, and so he, he really was unable to elucidate the structure of benzene in the laboratory. But in thinking really, really hard about the problem, he ended up having a dream of a snake that turned around and bit its own tail. And then afterwards, he woke up to the idea that benzene was chemically shaped like a ring, uh, you know. And so this may be apocryphal, this story may not have occurred, but I think that just about anyone whose sort of job it is to think up things has had the experience of thinking up things you know, when they wake up or think up things when they're in the shower, you know. And so the idea of of your senses and the role that the senses play is that, you know, the senses also provide potentially uh, randomizing input that may also contribute to a convergence of, you know, a neural network. So I guess what I'm trying to say when I talk about sort of tapping into, you know, these bigger things is, you know, the role of, nature for which we may have kind of an evolutionary tuning, just going to the beach and maybe having the sound and the spray and everything else kind of tune, tune up your, your senses. And so I guess what I'm really alluding to is that, you know, there may be more sort of holistic ways to tap into potential, uh, individual potential and, and group potential.
2: Fascinating. I'm, I'm starting to see what you mean by not knowing anything being a superpower. Now, the thing that I think about with that, that space of not knowing is gestalt philosophy. So when, you know, we go into this place of surrender, uh, or of not knowing, like, you know, you're troubleshooting a bug, and there's some weird error message on your screen, and you're like, WF, how did that get there, right? When you're in that state of puzzle right we're forced into this place of surrender and when we're in that place of puzzle of not knowing that rather than making predictions about a thing we're sort of like in this kind of background thread mode like a like a flashlight that's diffused across the whole thing that can cause convergence on ideas on strategies or things that might help us out those moments of insight only come when we're in that place of not knowing. And so if we can not know, you know, across the board, if we can be uncertain about what is before us, if we can kick back and orient our center around our heart, I think that's the power in losing your mind and coming to your senses. It's going back to those basic instincts,
3: That's right. And I think if we're over reliant on kind of pure logic, and kind of this posture of kind of knowing, uh, you know, because one of the dangers that people who are very intelligent fall into is sort of having an over reliance on the posture of knowing and being, for example, the one who knows, and actually deriving power from knowledge, and therefore, you know, having this kind of position of never wanting to be the person who doesn't know you know and so I think that in a way the thing that's really interesting about the way the world is shaking out is kind of the increase in the number of intelligences you know sort of non-human intelligences you know and I specifically talking about machine intelligences you know again you know not relying on the idea that your dog is going to Take your job, uh, you know. Nor nor will people from other countries take your jobs, you know. As Andrew Yang, kind of former presidential candidate, said very aptly, the machines are taking the jobs, right? So, it, the thing that I think is important to kind of conceptualize is, you know, how can humans do best what humans do, you know? So, I think we're we're dipping into uh, several kind of key domains in the thinking of Peter Thiel. Uh, In his book, Zero to One, where he talks about, you know, first of all, like how can what what would be logical for humans and machines? And, you know, his his mindset is, is humans are like one country that's good at doing A and machines are like another country that's good at doing B. So what we should do is we should set up uh, trade so that humans can trade what they're good at to machines and the machines can trade what they're good at back to humans you know which means that it doesn't over time necessarily pay for humans to become really good at stuff that machines are already good at right so then it becomes more interesting and important for humans to become really exceptionally good at things that humans are good at you know so for example i believe at the moment one of the things that humans have a huge advantage over machines is in the depth to which humans can form relationships with other humans. You know, I think that it's definitely possible for humans to form relationships with machines, but I don't think the depth of those relationships is yet comparable. So I think that's an interesting model. The other thing that I think where Peter Thiel comes into play is he defines investors as people who don't know, right? Because the idea is that if you know, then you're going to be the one who does the thing, So the person who does the thing is the person who knows, and the response to not knowing is diversification. So if you're diversifying your behaviors and activities, you're really, it means that you don't know, right? If you knew what to do, you would just go do that exclusively. So that's kind of, you know, another kind of core principle that sort of arises out of this posture.
1: And once again, we come back to when you don't know, you have more actions open to you.
3: Yes, yes, absolutely. And that's kind of where things like hope come from, right? Which is the this idea of potentiality, you know, and this idea of degrees of freedom, right, that emerge out of this state of unknowingness, right? Because I think that the danger that people can fall into is just this idea that everything is just works a certain deterministic way. And the thing that's very interesting about humans is that humans are capable of non-deterministic behaviors and thoughts. And that's, uh, you know, at least something that we can point to at the moment and say that's what we believe to be the case.
1: Right, we influence each other. We change the likelihood of action. And we influence ourselves. We change with our intentions In my opinion, we change the likelihood of our actions as opposed to determining them.
3: Yeah, and it brings brings us all the way back to this notion of marriage, right? Because one of the fascinating things, so there's a guy, Dr. John Gottman, who runs a research lab called the Love Lab.
0: That's who I read from. Yeah, keep going. Yeah,
3: Gottman's wonderful. And, you know, one of the things that he came up with is that his daughter actually came up with a definition of romance. And the definition that she came up with that he was unable to refute and therefore ended up adopting is the idea that the other person might be magic. so that that's basically <laughs> uh, that's basically a definition, right? And uh, it's quite an astonishing definition. Uh, You know, and the idea that you can hold that possibility is something that can potentially create something mysterious in the context of relationship, right? Because if you actually look at the converse, right, then, you know, then the converse is basically this notion that you assume that the other person has no such capability. And then you basically are assuming that the other person is essentially a muggle, right? So I think if you kind of perform reductionism upon another person, it actually very much potentially limits the potential that you can derive from that person. And the thing that's very interesting is if you kind of like reduce the person deterministically, uh, then the idea becomes then that you then suddenly think that, you know, the person And that you kind of are now boxing that person in, right? Now, the thing that's interesting is the dynamic of what happens when person A does that to person B. But the question becomes, you know, how does person A kindle within person B this impression of themselves? And then how does person B also hold person A in the same regard, and creates this kind of biochemical potentiality, right? So that, that's something that I think is interesting and kind of maybe a hallmark of successful marriages and potentially successful business partnerships, right? Because, you know, when you think about this notion of, you know, romantic, if you kind of define it as this notion of holding the possibility that the other person could be magic, Right. It, you know, however so you into want
1: a founder, right? Someone who's going to break the pattern.
3: Bingo. Going to be magic. Bingo. Exactly. Very, very well put. Right. So the idea is, is, oh, well, this person is going to become a magical person or is already a magical person. Right. And so that's absolutely this, but then there's a biochemistry that comes with that. Right. Which is that if you kind of, and, and obviously like, they, there, there are limitations. The world is full of limitations, but like, this is in in some ways, you know, a place from which to sort of um kindle uh, positivity, and you know, create uh, extraordinary potential. You know, and and by the way, like, the thing that's really interesting is, you know, combining that with kind of rationality in combining that with evidence, right? Because obviously, you can't solely rely on this kind of hypothetical construct of magic, you know. Because the reality is that magic, in its sort of truest definitional form, doesn't appear to exist, right? So, to me, the thing that the thing that I'm pointing to is not actually uh, non-evidentiary belief systems and. You know it real kind of magic spelled with a CK. You know I, what I'm really pointing at is I'm pointing at the emergence of kind of extraordinary human potential if people are regarding each other positively. so that that's that's really you know what i'm what I'm alluding to.
1: Kind of the definition of magic is that once you figure out how it works, it's not magic anymore, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. That's beautiful. Inherently, that's we, very we good. can't find it because as soon as we find it, it's not magic anymore. And yet, as you we, we talk about several times, people aren't deterministic. And we do surprise each other. And that surprise is magic because it's everything else that we haven't already predicted.
3: Yes, that's beautifully put. That's beautifully put, right? So what it is is it's sort of a surprising expansion of the predicted field space, right? So you're basically saying, well, I predicted this range of outcomes and suddenly I'm surprised to see a different range of outcomes, right? And so that, that you know, heretofore could not be explained except by magic, right? So, you know, I think Arthur C. Clarke was the one who coined the phrase, any sufficiently advanced technology should be indistinguishable from magic, right? So it's it's very much pointing at what you're describing, you know, which is it exceeds what I understand the physical world as being capable of doing. Yeah, <laughs> right? Mechanistic like, reductionist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know, like so if you if you took a time machine and you brought someone from the past into today, and we started you know using uh, you know our smartphones, you know, I think. Most people of significant historical distance would certainly experience that as a magical phenomenon, you know. Especially with kind of weird things like video and you know other kinds of you know strange capabilities. So yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, I'm using the term magic in a way that doesn't require sort of non-evidentiary belief systems or you know any kind of voodoo or or ghosts or anything like that.
2: Because magic is the emergence of extraordinary human potential if people are regarding one another positively.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, and I obviously, you know, we all need to be held within a framework of accountability. So, you know, it certainly isn't an unlimited uh, capacity of anyone. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I think that's where we can apply this principle of kind of not knowing, you know, that we can potentially apply that towards, you know, other people.
2: But I I feel like we've all experienced that, though, where there's, you know, you're in a design discussion, and you've got really good synergy going and really good generativity going. And you experience that magic from the extraordinary human potential that blossoms in the room, that was a surprise that you weren't expecting. Like, we have experiences we all have experiences where we felt that magic right
3: yeah absolutely and i you know we've all kind of also had the opposite experiences you know both where we're sort of being regarded deterministically or that we are regarding others in in a more deterministic and you know a way that kind of comes out of limitation and in many cases, we're sort of not wrong, right? So, you know, it is it is a combination of those two forces, uh, you know, in, in the world. They're sort of, I would characterize it as sort of the limited and the unlimited. That's awesome. We just broke down magic on the show. <laughs> so
2: we're getting to the end of the show here. And what we usually do is... I'll give our our last reflections, takeaways for uh, listeners at the end of the show, kind of wrapping up with one final thought. And Miko, you get to go
3: last. Sure, sounds good.
1: I have a reflection. My favorite part of the show today is this idea that if we think we know something, if we have that feeling of certainty, which sometimes feels good, sometimes it feels good to know stuff, or to feel like you do, that that leads to despair sometimes. And that the opposite of realizing that we don't know everything of the people around us and the world around us can surprise us, that that leads to hope. The feeling of certainty leading to despair and, and the release of that, of admitting that we really don't know everything as a source of hope. That's, I find that
0: very encouraging. The end. What I just wrote down a minute ago was one thing I consider to be just very important in my life, both personally and professionally, is to be feel like I'm known. But when you were talking about being regarded in a deterministic way, uh, that also resonated me with me because when people assume they know everything there is to know about me, I don't like that. <laughs> um, I don't think anyone does because I think it feels like you're being reduced. And so then now I'm touching, I'm thinking about this discussion we've had about magic, which is, I guess like sort of that ideal state is like, I want to be on a team where we each feel professionally compelled by each other. Not personally, uh, professionally, like we want to know each other better and we, we, we're drawn professionally to one another, to sort of, you know, mesh, but that we never feel like we 100% understand each other, because we appreciate that journey of getting to know each other even better. That's my reflection.
2: I was scrolling through all my notes here, and one thread that we didn't really touch on too much, but seems to connect a lot of these things, and since it's Black History Month, the Bob Marley principle that <laughs> that you mentioned. And since I'm a big Bob Marley fan, I've been sort of thinking about the Bob Marley philosophy and Rastafarianism and how that connects with some of the ideas you've been talking about with all of these things. But one of the things I, I've been thinking about, I, I mentioned this idea of this you know, visualization of each person being a fountain. And then if I've got all these different fountains out there, all these different intelligences outside myself. And here I am, this one eye, and here's all these other eyes in the world, right? And when you realize all the intelligence that's out there, how small you are in that network of all the eyes, right? Yet we're all made of that same stuff, that same energy that courses through us from our heart, our gut, you know, these fountains, with this thin layer credit card thickness of rationality this facade on top of everything else and it's so easy to make all these fast assumptions with that little bit of credit card but if we can lose our mind and come back to our senses and really see that you know we're all part of this fabric of all the eye, right and it's so easy to m- make those wrong impressions but we're not really all that different
3: yeah I appreciate you re that like uh what's really interesting about you know the quote is when I was talking about you can't fool all the people all the time you know that's from get up stand up and so in a way the song itself is about standing up for your rights, right? So it's it's very interesting because it's an oppositional theme and it's one where people are actually trying to hold others accountable, right? So in a way, it's a, a kind of a way of connecting with that world of limitation and connecting with the world that's kind of more deterministic and resistant, right? But the thing that's fascinating is, is if you want to kind of connect it to the broader themes of, Kind of the Rastafarian, you know, philosophy. You know, this notion of like we've been talking about this concept that they think of as like I and I, right? Which is the relationship between, kind of what in Buddhism is thought of as the small mind and the big mind, right? The individual and the universal, the limited and the unlimited, the manifest and the unmanifest, right? So you know, I think that uh, it's it's great for you to kind of reinvoke the Bob Marley principle, you know, just to really kind of reconnect us with kind of the larger framework, right, which is that, you know, it's very smart to hold people in this kind of regard, but at the same time, you also have to hold people to account. So, you know, I think all of that's kind of embedded within that way of looking at the world. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Miko, for
2: joining us today.
3: Oh, it was a lot of fun.
2: It's been really great having you.
3: Yeah, thanks so much.
2: Miko, if people want to learn more about you or hear
1: more of your thoughts, where can they go?
3: Ah, Very easy. Uh, You can follow me on Miko Java on Twitter, uh, M-I-K-O-J-A-V-A. Also, my website is Miko.com, M-I-K-O.com. And uh, I think those are the best ones.